would, turn with me one final time today to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 4. At the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's last two sentences were this. He said at the end of that famous novel, That is the very end of the adventure of the wardrobe. But if the professor was right, it was only the beginning of the adventures of Narnia. Uh, This morning, we come to the end of this particular story of redemption that happens in the life and this family of Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and his daughter-in-law, Ruth. But this is most certainly not the end of the story of redemption as it unfolds throughout the pages of Scripture. This is just one link in a chain that goes throughout all of Scripture, this story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration that echoes throughout the pages of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And the story of of redemption is one that is still alive and well in our day. There is a God in heaven who is redeeming a people for himself from every tribe and tongue. This word redemption means to purchase out of, to bring out of bondage. And Christ has most certainly paid the price, he's paid the debt to deliver us from bondage of sin and death and give us his righteousness. And so although we come to the end of this particular story of redemption, the story of redemption continues on in our day. And as we think about the story of Ruth... And we think about the story of the Bible, the grand narrative of Scripture, and we think about this church, this local church that represents the redeemed in the year 2023. Uh, we, We need to stop and consider this morning as we think about this plan of redemption that is unfolding before us, that God uses ordinary people like you and I in his plan of redemption. We've most certainly seen that here in the story of Ruth, and we will continue to see that here in this final chapter. If you would, read with me, uh, beginning there in verse 1 of Ruth chapter 4. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Mahlon, also Ruth the Moabite. 
the widow of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth. And she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. God bless the reading of his word. As we think about this plan of redemption that is unfolding before us here and the ordinary people that make up this story, there are several important things we need to consider about the God who is sovereign over this story. Uh, One of the things that we see here in chapter 4 and have seen since the beginning of the story of Ruth is that God's ways are beyond our comprehension We cannot fathom the works that he is doing, and yet he is working diligently to bring about his will, and we see that happening here in this story. Uh, Verse 1 tells us that Boaz goes to the gate there of Bethlehem. This is the same gate that Naomi and Ruth would have passed through when they came into Bethlehem at the beginning of the story, and Boaz is very purposeful in this. The gate is where business would have taken place, and we know coming out of chapter 3 that Boaz has some business that he needs to deal with, with this kinsman who is nearer than he in regards to Ruth and her future as a bride. And so he comes to the gate there knowing that this is where business would be had and there would have been people there that he needed to be witnesses to this legal uh, conversation that is is going to happen that we see unfold here. And in another providential turn of events, as we've seen so often in these four chapters, this one, this redeemer, shows up on the scene. He comes and Boaz says to him there in verse 2, Turn aside, my friend, sit down here. Now I'm reading from the English Standard Version and it translates the word there, friend. Uh, This is actually a phrase in the original language in the Hebrew that is uh, somewhat meaningless. It it carries the meaning in our day of Mr. So-and-so. If you forget someone's name in conversation, you might call them Mr. So-and-so. And And I hope you noticed as we read through chapter 4 and considering what we read last week in chapter 3 that this kinsman redeemer who's nearer than Boaz goes nameless throughout the story. This is important, as we'll note here in a moment. 
So he has the elders and the witnesses join him there in this legal proceeding, and we would expect him to get right to the point. Who is going to marry Ruth? But we come to learn some new information. Naomi has a parcel of land that she's looking to sell. She needs the money so that she and and Ruth can live on it. And so if this kinsman redeemer can purchase the land from her, it will keep the land in the family. This is really important. Uh, for this family. It's it's hard for us to understand in our day, but uh, land would have been very significant for the success of the generations to come for any particular family. So for this land to be removed from the family and the clan of Elimelech would have been uh, a a great uh, source of of concern for Naomi and any prospect of having children. And, And I think this bodes well for us coming out of Genesis recently, where we see Abraham at the end of his days going to great links to lay claim to what? Land. Land is really important here. And so Boaz makes this proposition, he makes his intentions clear, and the, the kinsman redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, at the end of verse 4, says, I will redeem it. He likes this prospect. The prospect is great for him to gain this land. But then there's a catch, and we know what it is. Boaz and his main intention in coming to him is the fact that Ruth is a part of this. So there in verse 5, he presents that information to him. He says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. Notice there that he calls her the Moabite. Again, Boaz is very purposeful, and if you sense that he is being very deliberate here in the conversation and how he's approached Mr. So-and-so to bring about a certain end in this conversation, you would be right in that observation. He is presenting her in such a way to bring about what he desires to come from this conversation. And at this point, Mr. So-and-so, the kinsman who is closer, changes his tune The proposition of buying this land is no longer that great of a proposition. If he is to to take on this land, but then also take on Ruth, if Ruth has a son, which inevitably will happen, the son would then be the heir to the land, and Mr. So-and-so would lose his claim to it. And he says as much there in verse 6. He says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Mr. So-and-so is looking out for his own intentions. We think about all of the baggage that we've mentioned throughout the story that would come with this Moabite foreign woman, Ruth, if someone was to marry her. And for Mr. So-and-so, it's too much of a burden for him to bear. So then we come to verse 7. And there's this abrupt transition where the writer uh, takes a moment to tell us some important information. There's this custom in this time in Israel where this type of transaction and this redeeming exchange would have been made official by the taking of the sandal and giving it to the other. And so this happens, and it happens there in front of the elders and these witnesses that Boaz is going to be the one to take the land, to purchase the land from Naomi. And there in verse 9, he tells us that he will then take all that belong to Elimelech and his sons, Chilion and Mahlon, who have died. He will possess it. And with that, he will take Ruth as his wife. And this legal transaction happens here at the gates of Bethlehem. There's something here that seems quite simplistic to us that's very important in the story. I hope you noticed as we read through chapter 4 how important names are to this chapter. 
The last four verses here are a genealogy made up of names. We know that names are important to all of Scripture. We see genealogies throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament alike. Here in a moment, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 1 and consider the genealogy of Christ. Even in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we're told that there is the Lamb's book of life that has in it the list of names of the redeemed. Names are important to the story of redemption. Here, the women of Bethlehem pray that Boaz's name would spread with renown in Bethlehem. And then we see saints that came before this story in Perez and Tamar and Judah and Rachel and Leah. But then we also see names that come after the story of Ruth and Obed and Jesse and King David himself. Names that are all central to the story of redemption. Even Chilion and Mahlon, the sons of Elimelech, are named here. And yet, there is one character in the story who goes unnamed. That is Mr. So-and-so. Because of his what's-in-it-for-me attitude, he will forever remain nameless in the pages of Scripture. Consider the irony here. The, the links that he went to pro to protect his good name left his name out of the pages of of scripture he loses out on his place in the story of redemption and yet there's Boaz and here Boaz receives not only the land and this strong woman who can carry 80 pounds on her back he receives a place in God's story of redemption when we were in Genesis uh, just over a month ago, we continued to highlight there at the end of Abraham's story the threats to the seed of promise. All of the threats that come up in Abraham's life to Isaac and his birth and how over and over again, whether it's Abraham's fault or someone else's fault, God works in a miraculous way to bring about the birth of Isaac. And here again, in this, this lineage of the Messiah, we see another threat averted. Boaz intervenes as the kinsman redeemer. And this line of Messiah will continue. How do we know it's the line of Messiah? Well, there at the very end, he is going to be the father of David, who is the father of Christ, Messiah himself. And so one of the themes of Ruth that we have probably had in the back of our minds as we've walked through these four chapters comes more into view here at the end of the story. That God's economy does not work like our economy. His ways are higher than our ways. And Mr. So-and-so wanted to do things according to his ways. I was driving... Uh, here in San Antonio this past week, and there was a bumper sticker on the back of a car that simply said, My life, my rules. This very much sums up the world in which we live in today. It's about my truth, what I want, regardless of what the consequences are, or the ramifications are for anybody else. It's my way or the highway. It's really easy for us to identify this attitude in the culture, and yet oftentimes this attitude of Mr. So-and-so, what's in it for me manifests itself in the Christian life. 
when we begin to count the cost of obedience or whether or not we should share the gospel with a neighbor or a co-worker, or should we participate in the life and ministry of the church, the first and foremost question we tend to ask ourselves is, what's in it for me? And this is the attitude that is running rampant in Christianity today, especially in America. Just look at how church services have been conducted across America this very morning where there is more of a desire to please the masses and entertain the masses with smoke machines and laser shows and entertainment than there is a desire on Sunday mornings for the church to worship its creator as he has told us to. Think about how when we move to a different town and when we visit churches, what is one of the main questions that we look to answer when we're visiting a church? What's in it for me? What felt need can this church meet for me? Instead of asking, is this church faithful to the word of God? Is it a healthy New Testament church? Is this church about making much of Christ in this world? We, we see this in our evangelism, in our fear to offend people. We don't want to talk about sin and death and hell in our evangelism. But we cannot share the love of Christ if we do not first plead with people to consider their sinful state. We see this in how we study the Bible and apply it to our lives, where we read the Bible and we make ourselves the main character. The Bible is all about me. We see this in how we pray. Our prayers are, are very seldom saturated with adoration and confession and thanksgiving. Our prayers are more, sound more like rubbing a lamp and asking a genie to grant us three wishes. We only come to God when we have a need that we want him to grant to us. If we're not careful, we have and will have this type of what's in it for me attitude in the Christian life, and yet we compare Mr. So-and-so's attitude with that of Christ in the garden. In Luke chapter 22, the night before he goes to the cross to be crucified, he says, Lord, if you will remove this cup from me as he considers the prospect of the gruesome death on the cross. And yet, what does he say finally in his prayer there? Not my will, but yours be done. In our day, we need to be reminded of this more and more. And I, I apologize as a pastor if I do not remind you of this often enough. But church, it is not about you. It's not about me. It's about God and his glory among the nations. This is why Christ comes and he says the two greatest commandments are what? Love God and love others. And how often we lose sight of that in the Christian life because we want to answer this question, what's in it for me? And so the question that's presented to us here is, will we submit ourselves to God's ways and his plans in this life, or will we simply look out for ourselves? For Boaz, God's favor was more important to him than the favor of men, and yet... Ironically, he receives the approval of the people. You see it there in verses 11 and 12. In response to all of this, we see this great prayer that is prayed over Boaz and over Ruth and their, and their coming together in this marriage. But we see all these names that are mentioned there by the people in verses 11 and 12, and we're reminded that God's kingdom is made up of broken people. 
if you look at the prayer that's there in verses 11 and 12, it's incredible how prophetic this prayer is because Boaz and Ruth will most certainly be built up in the house of Israel. Their names will be remembered and are remembered even this day in this story of redemption. They pray in regards to Leah and Rachel, who are the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel, and and Ruth's descendants, too, would have such a renown. She is the the mother of David, King David himself. You see, they mention Tamar there and and compare Ruth to Tamar. Ruth, like Tamar in, in the story there in Genesis, would bear a son who was crucial to the story of Messiah. Tamar has a son by Judah. Christ would come from the tribe of Judah. Ruth has a, has a son with Boaz. Boaz is of, from Bethlehem. Jesus would come from the city of David, the city of Bethlehem. Like Ruth, Tamar too was a foreigner who lost her husband and had no child. Unlike Ruth, though, Tamar kept her identity a secret there in her interactions with Judah in the book of Genesis where she deceives her father-in-law and pretends to be a prostitute in order to have a child. Where we see Ruth going to the threshing floor last week and she is completely clear and transparent about who she is and what her intentions are. Regardless of the, out- of the way the outcome came, both of these women's lives result in a place in the line of Messiah. Now, we've talked about this a lot. It's time for us to go and see this. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 1. Hold your place there in the book of Ruth. Let's look at the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1 and see how significant this is. We've known where the story of Ruth is going. We know that that David would come from Ruth and Boaz and, and that Christ comes from David But just consider just the the genealogy of Christ here in Matthew chapter 1. And we're not going to read all of it, but just just scan over it there. Verses 1 through 17. And consider first just the women who are mentioned here in the genealogy of Christ. Don't miss this. This is the genealogy of Christ. Notice the women. Tamar is mentioned in verse 3. This Canaanite woman who deceived her father-in-law by pretending to be a prostitute. But there is also an actual prostitute in the genealogy of Christ. Verse 5, we have Rahab. Rahab, a Canaanite woman in the city of Jericho, is in the genealogy of Christ. Ruth is found here in the genealogy of Christ, and her life is is far more eloquent than that of Tamar and and Rahab, but still, she's a Moabite. She's a foreigner. Her her life represents something that is anti-Israel. Bathsheba, the end of verse 6, although she goes unnamed, we see here the wife of Uriah. You know what happened between David and Bathsheba and the wicked act that David did. And so we highlight the women here, but look at the scoundrels for men that are found in the genealogy of Christ. David was a man after God's own heart, but he did this wicked thing with Bathsheba. We already mentioned the, 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 the thing that Judah did with Tamar. And we begin to see something here in the genealogy of Christ and as we think about what we see here in Ruth, and that is that the story of redemption is made up of broken sinners. It's made up of dysfunctional people, and this is at the heart of Jesus coming to this earth. He came to this earth to seek and save, not the righteous, 
Not the Pharisees, but what? The lost. And the only way that he can do this is by condescending, by coming near to us in the form of of a man. And we see this and celebrate this at Christmas. This is what we celebrate at Advent. God made low to save wretched sinners like you and me. Hear this, friend. God's kingdom is not made up of people like Mr. So-and-so, who are impressed by themselves and are simply looking out for their own well-being. God's kingdom is not made up with people like the Pharisees who made much of themselves and were only looking out for their best interest and making laws that only they could keep who were self-righteous. No, the kingdom of God is made up of outsiders and people who are broken and bitter. Sinners like Ruth and Naomi and Tamar and Rahab and Judah and David. The kingdom of God is made up of people that Paul writes to in the church in Corinth who he says were once idolaters and swindlers and prostitutes and homosexuals and thieves and slanderers and drunkards. But their life is no longer marked by that because they have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so there in 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul lists these these vices about the church in Corinth, he goes on to say, And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The kingdom of God is full of broken sinners. And so if you are trying to enter God's kingdom today by your own works and your own good deeds and the laws that you have made for yourself, hear me, dear friend, you will not enter the kingdom of God that way. Only those who declare spiritual bankruptcy before a holy God will find a place in his kingdom. We must come before him and declare that we are sinners before a holy God and apart from him intervening on our behalf, we have nothing. And dear friend, we rejoice today that he has intervened on our behalf. That God himself came near to us in the form of a man, lived a sinless life, died on a cross in our place, taking the penalty for sin that we deserve. And if we simply believe in him by faith today, we will be saved, wretched sinners that we are. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the hope of Christmas. But as we think about these redeemed, these who are broken, dysfunctional people, we need to understand one final central theme to the book of Ruth. One that's probably been in the back of our minds as we've walked through this story, but one that we need to note here at the very end. And that is that God reigns over his people. You can sense that from verse 1 in Ruth chapter 1 and throughout all four of these chapters, there is this sense of one thing. God reigns supreme and he will have his way. As we come to the end of of the chapter here, notice all of the things that are redeemed, even things that seem somewhat trivial. There in verse 13, it says, so Boaz took Ruth. Some of your translations say Boaz took Ruth Home, that word home or house is there in the original language. Even Ruth's living conditions have been redeemed. Consider where she was at the end of chapter 2, verse 23. She lived with her mother-in-law. The Lord is the one who gives her conception there in verse 13. Boaz went into her and the Lord 
gave her conception and she bore a son. Interestingly, in the story of Ruth, this is only the second time, one of two times in the story of Ruth, where God directly intervenes on the story. The other is there at the beginning of chapter 1, where uh, where Naomi in the fields of Moab hears that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. He had relented, the famine is over, and then here the Lord is the one who grants life to Ruth. This is important for us to consider here because so much of the story revolves around the movements of the character. There's, there's very little, only these two times, where we see God directly intervening, and it appears on the surface that all of this is happening by chance. And yet, if you remember, the writer of Ruth kind of mocks this idea of anything happening by happenstance there in chapter 2, verse 3, where it says that Ruth happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz. That it was a chance, chance, emphasizing here that there is no such thing as chance, but everything is happening according to the plans of Yahweh. The writer emphasizes this. The characters themselves acknowledge God's providential working over this story. Naomi, when she comes back to Bethlehem, she says what? The Lord has brought me back empty. She doesn't like her situation, but she knows that it's the Lord who has done it. You you see Ruth's confession of faith in chapter 1. She commends it to the Lord. Even down to the greeting that Boaz gives to his workers in the field there in chapter 2, verse 4, is centered around who? The Lord. The Lord be with you. And there in verse 12 of chapter 2, when he uh, says that there is a payment due to Ruth, he says, the Lord repay you. And then here at the end of the story, what do the women of Bethlehem do? The same women who greeted Naomi when she returned to Bethlehem, they attribute all of this to the Lord. Look at verse 14. What did the women say? Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. God has provided for Naomi the Redeemer that she needs. And they recognize all that the Lord has done. Notice verse 15, all of the things that this baby has done for Naomi. I love verse 15. They say here that the the child would restore life to Naomi. It would revive her spirit is what they're saying there. The grief and bitterness that she returns to Bethlehem with has been lifted by this baby who was born. I I think about when uh, my first child was born and it was very soon after the loss of my father. And it was a very dark time in my, my family's life, the tragic loss of my father. But then when Layla came, that relief That was there. The darkness was lifted. That's what Naomi feels here. They say there in verse 15 that he would be a nourisher of her in her old age. He would sustain her. He gives her her purpose back again. That's why it talks about there that she would be his nurse and that they rejoice, the women do, that a son has been born to Naomi there in verse 17. Naomi would raise this child as her own. And it's all because of the Lord and his working in her life. But there's something else that's important here that we, we, we need to note that they recognize as a part of all of this, and that is Ruth's love for Naomi. Verse 15, your daughter-in-law who loves you. We cannot undervalue Ruth's love for Naomi here and what she has done for her mother-in-law. We think back last week to chapter 3 where Naomi says to her, who are you? 
Naomi has gone from this this feeling of disdain for Ruth to now praising God for her. Because as the women in the city say, Ruth is to her more than seven sons. Remember, in, in Hebrew culture, and Hebrew literature, that number seven represents completeness. And so if a woman had seven sons, they would say that she had completed what she needed to do to keep the, the lineage of her family going. Ruth is more than that to Naomi. God has even redeemed the relationship between this mother and her daughter-in-law. There's one final surprise to the story, though. And again, it's not a surprise. There's no spoilers here. We know where the story is going. We've highlighted it. We've talked about it enough already, even this morning. But now that we come to verse 17, we need to bask in the glory of where this story goes. Verse 17 They gave a name to him, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This great king of Israel who would point us to the better king who was to come from this family line in Christ himself, the king of kings. This story has been pointing us to him all along, and we see it here in the final verses of Ruth. There's one more thing I want you to consider that's been redeemed in this story, and that is the name of Elimelech. Elimelech, who was rebellious at the beginning of Ruth chapter 1. Do you remember what his name meant? Elimelech means my God is king. And we noted how he was not living his life according to what his name meant. But even here at the end of the story, Elimelech is named again, and his legacy is redeemed not by his good works, but by God's good, gracious favor. And we come to see here at the end of Ruth that God still reigns in Israel in spite of his people's waywardness. David's throne did not come from the cleverness of the people involved in this story. It came by God's divine plan and design. And so we think of Sarah, the the wife of Abraham, who had this miraculous birth come of Isaac that was not of her. It was all of God. We see the same thing here with Ruth, this miraculous birth that came to this Moabite woman. And we think of the miraculous birth that is to come with Mary in the New Testament as she Uh, The the Holy Spirit comes upon her and she conceives a son who is Messiah. We are reminded here as we come to the end of Ruth that redemption does not come from men. But it comes by the miraculous work of God. And so as we close this book, I want us to ask two questions very simply as we close here. Where have you come from and where are you going? First, just think of where we've come from in the book of Ruth in general. We start with a famine in the land because of Israel's rebellion against God in the time when the judges rule. But then we see the the grace of God and and relenting from the famine and providing food. And we see this, this woman who, in God's goodness, brings her back to Bethlehem. And although there's bitterness in her heart, God is doing something great in her life to redeem her. He provides for her and her needs physical and her emotions, but primarily he provides for her in a redeemer. But I also want you to consider where you have come from over the last several weeks. 
as we've walked through the book of Ruth over these last several weeks, what has the Lord done in your life? What, what has he done to bring about redemption and restoration in you? I, I'm so humbled and thankful to hear of just all the ways that this simple four-chapter Old Testament book has been working in the lives of individuals and families in this church. And I, I can say that, that this book has been doing something in my heart and in my family's home as well. What has God done over the last several weeks in your life to draw you to himself? But finally, where are we going today? As we close this time in Ruth, what is the trajectory of your life? Maybe today you come into this place and you're still holding on to rebellion that's represented in Elimelech. You, you fleed from the promises of God and you're pursuing the world in Moab. Maybe you come this morning and you're still clinging to some bitterness like Naomi. Questioning who God is and why he's brought you to this place in life that you find yourself today. Maybe you come into this place this morning and there is hurt relationships that need to be restored. Maybe this morning you come into this place with the attitude of Mr. So-and-so, what's in it for me? Dear friend, do not leave the book of Ruth behind this morning without casting yourself under the weight of God's grace. Rest in his grace. Rest in his goodness. Whatever sin or pride or bitterness that you are clinging to today, turn from that and turn again anew to Christ this morning. And so as we close, Church, may we trust in God's sovereign plan. May we rest in his covenant, steadfast love, his faithfulness that will never end. May we spend all of our days standing in awe of his abounding grace that he's bestowed to us. And may we walk in obedience to his laws and his commands as a delight over our lives in all that we say and do. Let's pray.